Hi, it's Chris. I have a special podcast for you, an experiment really, and a favor to ask. For this podcast, I'll read the opening statement of Ambassador William B. Taylor. He's the senior U.S. diplomat in Ukraine who testified behind closed doors before the U.S. House impeachment investigators on Tuesday, October 22nd. His extraordinary testimony has been called the smoking gun of President Trump's attempt to hold up Ukraine financial aid in exchange for political help from a foreign country. That's it. No conversation, no interview. Just the document itself. Bill Taylor's 15-page opening statement. A kind of docupod. Why am I doing this? My gut is there's a need for this type of service. Audio reads of important public documents. First, with our democracy under stress and with continuing testimony and the House impeachment inquiry picking up speed, these documents are interesting and essential. Two, with all of the spin, analysis, smear, and frankly, lies, it helps to know the exact words ourselves. And three, those exact words are powerful, much more powerful than that third-party spin. And perhaps most important, it's really hard to find the time to read them. As I said, this is an experiment. Is it a good idea? Useful? Will audiences listen? I don't know. So now, the favor. I'd be grateful for your feedback and answer to one question that you can send via email to chris at chrisreback.com. My question, is this service useful to you? Please let me know along with any additional thoughts with an email to chris at chrisreback.com. Thank you. Okay, that's all. You'll get the regular episode of Chris Reback's Conversations in your feed later this week. Now, here's the opening statement of Ambassador William B. Taylor, the senior U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, who testified before the U.S. House impeachment investigators on October 22nd. Mr. Chairman, I appreciate the opportunity to appear today to provide my perspective on the events that are the subject of the committee's inquiry. My sole purpose is to provide the committees with my views about the strategic importance of Ukraine to the United States, as well as additional information about the incidents in question. I have dedicated my life to serving U.S. interests at home and abroad in both military and civilian roles. My background and experience are nonpartisan, and I have been honored to serve every administration, Republican and Democrat, since 1985. For 50 years, I have served the country, starting as a cadet at West Point, then as an infantry officer for six years, including with the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam, then at the Department of Energy, then as a member of a Senate staff, then at NATO, then with the State Department here and abroad in Afghanistan, Iraq, Jerusalem, and Ukraine, and more recently as Executive Vice President of the nonpartisan United States Institute of Peace. While I have served in many places and in different capacities, I have a particular interest and respect for the importance of our country's relationship with Ukraine. Our national security demands that this relationship remain strong. However, in August and September of this year, I became increasingly concerned that our relationship with Ukraine was being fundamentally undermined by an irregular, informal channel of U.S. policymaking and by the withholding of vital security assistance for domestic political reasons. I hope my remarks today will help the committees understand why I believed that to be the case. At the outset, I would like to convey several key points. First, Ukraine is a strategic partner of the United States, important for the security of our country as well as Europe. Second, Ukraine is, right at this moment while we sit in this room, and for the last five years, under armed attack from Russia. Third, 
The security assistance we provide is crucial to Ukraine's defense against Russian aggression and, more importantly, sends a signal to Ukrainians and Russians that we are Ukraine's reliable strategic partner. And finally, as the committees are now aware, I said on September 9th in a message to Ambassador Gordon Sondland that withholding security assistance in exchange for help with a domestic political campaign in the United States would be, quote, crazy. I believed that then, and I still believe that. Let me now provide the committees a chronology of the events that led to my concern. On May 28th of this year, I met with Secretary Mike Pompeo, who asked me to return to Kiev to lead our embassy in Ukraine. It was and is a critical time in U.S.-Ukraine relations. Vladimir Zelensky had just been elected president, and Ukraine remained at war with Russia. As the summer approached, a new Ukrainian government would be seated, parliamentary elections were imminent, and the Ukrainian political trajectory would be set for the next several years. I had served as ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009, having been nominated by George W. Bush, and in the intervening 10 years, I have stayed engaged with Ukraine, visiting frequently since 2013 as a board member of a small Ukrainian non-governmental organization supporting good governance and reform. Across the responsibilities I have had in public service, Ukraine is special for me, and Secretary Pompeo's offer to return as chief of mission was compelling. I am convinced of the profound importance of Ukraine to the security of the United States and Europe for two related reasons. First, if Ukraine succeeds in breaking free of Russian influence, it is possible for Europe to be whole, free, democratic, and at peace. In contrast, if Russia dominates Ukraine, Russia will again become an empire, oppressing its people and threatening its neighbors and the rest of the world. Second, with the annexation of the Crimea in 2014 and the continued aggression in Donbas, Russia violated countless treaties, ignored all commitments, and dismissed all the principles that have kept the peace and contributed to prosperity in Europe since World War II. To restore Ukraine's independence, Russia must leave Ukraine. This has been and should continue to be a bipartisan U.S. foreign policy goal. When I was serving outside of government during the Obama administration and after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, I joined two other former ambassadors to Ukraine in urging Obama administration officials at the State Department, Defense Department, and other agencies to provide lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine in order to deter further Russian aggression. I also supported much stronger sanctions against Russia. I also supported much stronger sanctions against Russia. All to say, I cared about Ukraine's future and the important U.S. interests there. So when Secretary Pompeo asked me to go back to Kiev, I wanted to say yes. But it was not an easy decision. The former ambassador, Masha Jovanovich, had been treated poorly, caught in a web of political machinations both in Kiev and in Washington. I feared that those problems were still present. When I talked to her about accepting the offer, however, she urged me to go, both for policy reasons and for the morale of the embassy. Before answering the secretary, I consulted both my wife and a respected former senior Republican official who has been a mentor to me. I will tell you that my wife, in no uncertain terms, strongly opposed the idea. The mentor counseled, if your country asks you to do something, you do it, if you can be effective. I could be effective only if the U.S. policy of strong support for Ukraine, strong diplomatic support along with robust security, economic, and technical assistance, and if I had the backing of the Secretary of State to implement that policy. 
I had worried about what I had heard concerning the role of Rudolf Giuliani, who had made several high-profile statements about Ukraine and U.S. policy toward the country. So during my meeting with Secretary Pompeo on May 28th, I made clear to him and the others present that if U.S. policy toward Ukraine changed, he would not want me posted there, and I could not stay. He assured me that the policy of strong support for Ukraine would continue and that he would support me in defending that policy. With that understanding, I agreed to go back to Kiev. Because I was appointed by the secretary but not reconfirmed by the Senate, my official position was chargé d'affaires ad interim. I returned to Kiev on June 17th, carrying the original copy of a letter President Trump signed the day after I met with the secretary. In that letter, President Trump congratulated President Zelensky on his election victory and invited him to a meeting in the Oval Office. I also brought with me a framed copy of the Secretary's declaration that the United States would never recognize the illegal Russian annexation of Crimea. But once I arrived in Kiev, I discovered a weird combination of encouraging, confusing, and ultimately alarming circumstances. First, the encouraging. President Zelensky was taking over Ukraine in a hurry. He had appointed reformist ministers and supported long-stalled anti-corruption legislation. He took quick executive action, including opening Ukraine's high anti-corruption court, which was established under the previous presidential administration, but never allowed to operate. He called snap parliamentary elections. His party was so new it had no representation in the Rada, and later won an overwhelming mandate, controlling 60% of the seats. With his new parliamentary majority, President Zelensky changed the Ukrainian constitution to remove absolute immunity from Rada deputies, which had been the source of raw corruption for decades. There was much excitement in Kiev that this time things could be different. A new Ukraine might finally be breaking free from its corrupt post-Soviet past. And yet I found a confusing and unusual arrangement for making U.S. policy towards Ukraine. There appeared to be two channels of U.S. policymaking and implementation, one regular and one highly irregular. As the chief of mission, I had authority over the regular, formal diplomatic processes, including the bulk of the U.S. effort to support Ukraine against the Russian invasion and to help it defeat corruption. This regular channel of U.S. policymaking has consistently had strong bipartisan support both in Congress and in all administrations since Ukraine's independence from Russia in 1991. At the same time, however, there was an irregular, informal channel of U.S. policymaking with respect to Ukraine, one which included then-Special Envoy Kurt Volker, Ambassador Sondland, Secretary of Energy Rick Perry, and, as I subsequently learned, Mr. Giuliani. I was clearly in the regular channel, but I was also in the irregular one to the extent that Ambassadors Volker and Sondland included me in certain conversations. Although this irregular channel was well-connected in Washington, it operated mostly outside of official State Department channels. This irregular channel began when Ambassador Volker, Ambassador Sondland, Secretary Perry, and Senator Ron Johnson debriefed President Trump on May 23rd upon their return from President Zelensky's inauguration. The delegation returned to Washington enthusiastic about the new Ukrainian president and urged President Trump to meet with him early on to cement the U.S.-Ukraine relationship. But from what I understood, President Trump did not share their enthusiasm for a meeting with Mr. Zelensky. When I first arrived in Ukraine in June and July, the actions of both the regular and the irregular channels of foreign policy served the same goal, a strong U.S.-Ukraine partnership. But it became clear to me by August that the channels had diverged in their objectives. As this occurred, I became increasingly concerned. 
In late June, one of the goals of both channels was to facilitate a visit by President Zelensky to the White House for a meeting with President Trump, which President Trump had promised in his congratulatory letter of May 29th. The Ukrainians were clearly eager for the meeting to happen. During a conference call with Ambassador Volker, Acting Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs Phil Reeker, Secretary Perry, Ambassador Sondland, and Counselor of the U.S. Department of State Ulrich Breckbull on June 18th, it was clear that a meeting between the two presidents was an agreed-upon goal. But during my subsequent conversations with Ambassadors Volker and Sondland, they relayed to me that the president, quote, wanted to hear from Zelensky, end quote, before scheduling the meeting in the Oval Office. It was not clear to me what this meant. On June 27th, Ambassador Sondland told me during a phone conversation that President Zelensky needed to make clear to President Trump that he, President Zelensky, was not standing in the way of, quote, investigations. I sensed something was odd when Ambassador Sondland told me on June 28th that he did not wish to include most of the regular intra-agency participants in a call planned with President Zelensky later that day. Ambassador Sondland, Ambassador Volker, Secretary Perry, and I were on this call dialing in from different locations. However, Ambassador Sondland said he wanted to make sure no one was transcribing or monitoring as they added President Zelensky to the call. Also, before President Zelensky joined the call, Ambassador Volker separately told the U.S. participants that he, Ambassador Volker, planned to be explicit with President Zelensky in a one-on-one -on -one meeting in Toronto on July 2nd about what President Zelensky should do to get the White House meeting. Again, it was not clear to me on that call what this meant, but Ambassador Volker noted that he would relay that President Trump wanted to see rule of law, transparency, but also specifically cooperation on investigations to, quote, get to the bottom of things, end quote. Once President Zelensky joined the call, the conversation was focused on energy policy and the Stanitsia Luhanska Bridge. President Zelensky also said he looked forward to the White House visit President Trump had offered in his May 29th letter. I reported on this call to Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent, who had responsibility for Ukraine, and I wrote a memo for the record dated June 30th that summarized our conversation with President Zelensky. By mid-July, it was becoming clear to me that the meeting President Zelensky wanted was conditioned on the investigations of Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 elections. It was also clear that this condition was driven by the irregular policy channel I had come to understand was guided by Mr. Giuliani. On July 10th, Ukrainian officials Alexander Daniliuk, the Ukrainian National Security Advisor, and Andriy Yermak, an assistant to President Zelensky, and Secretary Perry, then National Security Advisor John Bolton, Ambassador Volker, and Ambassador Sondland met at the White House. I did not participate in the meeting and did not receive a readout of it until speaking with the National Security Council's, NSC's, then Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs, Fiona Hill, and the NSC's Director of European Affairs, Alex Vindman, on July 19th. On July 10th in Kiev, I met with President Zelensky's Chief of Staff, Andrei Bodan, and then Foreign Policy Advisor to the President and now Foreign Minister, Vadim Pristyeko, who told me that they had heard from Mr. Giuliani that the phone call between the two presidents was unlikely to happen and that they were alarmed and disappointed. I relayed their concerns to Councillor Breckbull. In the regular NSC Secure Video Conference call on July 18th, I heard a staff person from the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, say that there was a hold on security assistance to Ukraine, but could not say why. 
toward the end of an otherwise normal meeting, a voice on the call, the person was off screen, said that she was from OMB and that her boss had instructed her not to approve any additional spending of security assistance for Ukraine until further notice. I and others sat in astonishment. The Ukrainians were fighting the Russians and counted not only on the training and weapons, but also the assurance of U.S. support. All that the OMB staff person said was that the directive had come from the president to the chief of staff to the OMB. In an instant, I realized that one of the key pillars of our strong support for Ukraine was threatened. The irregular policy channel was running contrary to the goals of longstanding U.S. policy. There followed a series of NSC-led intra-agency meetings starting at the staff level and quickly reaching the level of cabinet secretaries. At every meeting, the unanimous conclusion was that the security assistance should be resumed, the hold lifted. At one point, the Defense Department was asked to provide an analysis of the effectiveness of the assistance. Within a day, the Defense Department came back with the determination that the assistance was effective and should be resumed. My understanding was that the Secretaries of Defense and State, the CIA Director, and the National Security Advisor sought a joint meeting with the President to convince him to release the hold. But such a meeting was hard to schedule, and the hold lasted well into September. The next day on the phone, Dr. Hill and Mr. Vindman tried to reassure me that they were not aware of any official change in the U.S. policy toward Ukraine, OMB's announcement notwithstanding. They did confirm that the hold on security assistance from Ukraine came from Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, and that the Chief of Staff maintained a skeptical view of Ukraine. In the same June 19th phone call, they gave me an account of the July 10th meeting with the Ukrainian officials at the White House. Specifically, they told me that Ambassador Sondland had connected, quote, investigations, end quote, with an Oval Office meeting for President Zelensky, which so irritated Ambassador Bolton that he abruptly ended the meeting, telling Dr. Hill and Mr. Vindman that they should have nothing to do with domestic politics. He also directed Dr. Hill to, quote, brief the lawyers, end quote. Dr. Hill said that Ambassador Bolton referred to this as a, quote, drug deal, end quote, after the July 10th meeting. Ambassador Bolton opposed a call between President Zelensky and President Trump out of concern that it, quote, would be a disaster, end quote. Needless to say, the Ukrainians in the meetings were confused. Ambassador Bolton, in the regular Ukraine policy decision-making channel, wanted to talk about security, energy, and reform. Ambassador Sondland, a participant in the irregular channel, wanted to talk about the connection between a White House meeting and Ukrainian investigations. Also during our July 19th call, Dr. Hill informed me that Ambassador Volker had met with Mr. Giuliani to discuss Ukraine. This caught me by surprise. The next day, I asked Ambassador Volker about that meeting, but received no response. I began to sense that the two decision-making channels, the regular and irregular, were separate and at odds. Later on July 19th and in the early morning of July 20th, parentheses, Kiev time, end parentheses, I received text messages and a three-way WhatsApp text conversation with Ambassadors Volker and Sondland, a record of which I understand has already been provided to the committees by Ambassador Volker. Ambassador Sondland said that a call between President Trump and President Zelensky would take place soon. Ambassador Volker said that what was, quote, most important is for Zelensky to say that he will help investigation and address any specific personnel issues if there are any, end quote. Later on July 20th, I had a phone conversation with Ambassador Sondland while he was on a train from Paris to London. Ambassador Sondland told me that he had recommended to President Zelensky that he use the phrase, quote, I will leave no stone unturned, end quote, 
with regard to, quote, investigations, end quote, when President Zelensky spoke with President Trump. Also on July 20th, I had a phone conversation with Mr. Daniliuk, during which he conveyed to me that President Zelensky did not want to be used as a pawn in a U.S. re-election campaign. The next day, I texted both Ambassadors Volker and Sondland about President Zelensky's concern. On July 25th, President Trump and President Zelensky had the long-awaited phone conversation. Strangely, even though I was chief of mission and was scheduled to meet with President Zelensky along with Ambassador Volker the following day, I received no readout of the call from the White House. The Ukrainian government issued a short, cryptic summary. During a previously planned July 26th meeting, President Zelensky told Ambassador Volker and me that he was happy with the call, but did not elaborate. President Zelensky then asked about the face-to-face meeting in the Oval Office, as promised in the May 29th letter from President Trump. After our meeting with President Zelensky, Ambassador Volker and I traveled to the front line in northern Donbass to receive a briefing from the commander of the forces on the line of contact. Arriving in the briefing in the military headquarters, the commander thanked us for security assistance, but I was aware that this assistance was on hold, which made me uncomfortable. Ambassador Volker and I could see the armed and hostile Russian-led forces on the other side of the damaged bridge across the line of contact. Over 13,000 Ukrainians had been killed in the war, one or two a week. More Ukrainians would undoubtedly die without the U.S. assistance. Although I spent the morning of July 26th with President Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials, the first summary of the Trump-Zelensky call that I heard from anybody inside the U.S. government was during a phone call I had with Tim Morrison, Dr. Hill's replacement at the NSC, on July 28th. Mr. Morrison told me that the call, quote, could have been better, end quote, and that President Trump had suggested that President Zelensky or his staff meet with Mr. Giuliani and Attorney General William Barr. I did not see any official readout of the call until it was publicly released on September 25th. On August 16th, I exchanged text messages with Ambassador Volker, in which I learned that Mr. Yermak had asked that the United States submit an official request for an investigation into Burisma's alleged violations of Ukrainian law if that is what the United States desired. A formal U.S. request to the Ukrainians to conduct an investigation based on violations of their own law struck me as improper, and I recommended to Ambassador Volker that we, quote, stay clear, end quote. To find out the legal aspects of the question, however, I gave him the name of a deputy assistant attorney general whom I thought would be the proper point of contact for seeking a U.S. referral for a foreign investigation. By mid-August, because the security assistance had been held for over a month for no reason that I could discern, I was beginning to fear that the long-standing U.S. policy of strong support for Ukraine was shifting. I called Counselor Breckbull to discuss this on August 21st. He said that he was not aware of a change of U.S. policy, but would check on the status of the security assistance. My concerns deepened the next day, on August 22nd, during a phone conversation with Mr. Morrison. I asked him if there had been a change in policy of strong support for Ukraine, to which he responded, quote, it remains to be seen, end quote. He also told me during this call that the, quote, president doesn't want to provide any assistance at all, end quote. That was extremely troubling to me. As I had told Secretary Pompeo in May, if the policy of strong support for Ukraine were to change, I would have to resign. Based on my call with Mr. Morrison, I was preparing to do so. Just days later, on August 27th, Ambassador Bolton arrived in Kiev and met with President Zelensky. During their meeting, security assistance was not discussed. Amazingly, news of the hold did not leak out until August 29th. I, on the other hand, was all too aware of and still troubled by the hold. 
near the end of Ambassador Bolton's visit, I asked to meet him privately, during which I expressed to him my serious concern about the withholding of military assistance to Ukraine while Ukrainians were defending their country from Russian aggression. Ambassador Bolton recommended that I send a first-person cable to Secretary Pompeo directly relaying my concerns. I wrote and transmitted such a cable on August 29th, describing the, quote, folly, end quote, I saw in withholding military aid to Ukraine at a time when hostilities were still active in the East and when Russia was watching closely to gauge the level of American support for the Ukrainian government. I told the secretary that I could not and would not defend such a policy. Although I received no specific response, I heard that soon thereafter the secretary carried the cable with him to a meeting at the White House focused on security assistance for Ukraine. The same day that I sent my cable to the secretary, August 29th, Mr. Yermak contacted me and was very concerned, asking about the withheld security assistance. The hold that the White House had placed on the assistance had just been made public that day in a Politico story. At that point, I was embarrassed that I could give him no explanation for why it was withheld. It still had not occurred to me that the hold on security assistance could be related to the, quote, investigations, end quote. That, however, would soon change. On September 1st, just three days after my cable to Secretary Pompeo, President Zelensky met Vice President Pence at a bilateral meeting in Warsaw. President Trump had planned to travel to Warsaw, but at the last minute had canceled because of Hurricane Dorian. Just hours before the Pence-Zelensky meeting, I contacted Mr. Daniliuk to let him know that the delay of U.S. security assistance was a, quote, all-or-nothing, end quote, proposition, in the sense that if the White House did not lift the hold prior to the end of the fiscal year, parentheses, September 30th, end parentheses, the funds would expire and Ukraine would receive nothing. I was hopeful that at the bilateral meeting, or shortly thereafter, the White House would lift the hold, but this was not to be. Indeed, I received a readout of the Pence-Zelensky meeting over the phone from Mr. Morrison, during which he told me that President Zelensky had opened the meeting by asking the vice president about security cooperation. The vice president did say that President Trump wanted the Europeans to do more to support Ukraine and that he wanted the Ukrainians to do more to fight corruption. During the same phone call I had with Mr. Morrison, he went on to describe a conversation Ambassador Sondland had with Mr. Yermak at Warsaw. Ambassador Sondland told Mr. Yermak that the security assistance money would not come until President Zelensky committed to pursue the Burisma investigation. I was alarmed by what Mr. Morrison told me about the Sondland-Yermak conversation. This was the first time I had heard that the security assistance, not just the White House meeting, was conditioned on the investigations. Very concerned, on that same day, I sent Ambassador Sondland a text message asking if, quote, we are now saying that the security assistance and a White House meeting are conditioned on investigations, end quote. Ambassador Sondland responded asking me to call him, which I did. During that phone call, Ambassador Sondland told me that President Trump had told him that he wants President Zelensky to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 U.S. election. Ambassador Sondland also told me that he now recognized that he made a mistake by earlier telling the Ukrainian officials to whom he spoke that a White House meeting with President Zelensky was dependent on a public announcement of investigations. In fact, Ambassador Sondland said, quote, everything, end quote, was dependent on such an announcement, including security assistance. He said that President Trump wanted President Zelensky, quote, in a public box, end quote, by making a public statement about ordering such investigations. 
In that same September 1st call, I told Ambassador Sondland that President Trump should have more respect for another head of state and that what he described was not in the interest of either President Trump or President Zelensky. At that point, I asked Ambassador Sondland to push back on President Trump's demand. Ambassador Sondland pledged to try. We also discussed the possibility that the Ukrainian prosecutor general, rather than President Zelensky, would make a statement about investigations, potentially in coordination with Attorney General Barr's probe into the investigation of interference in the 2016 elections. The next day, September 2nd, Mr. Morrison called to inform me that Mr. Daniliuk had asked him to come to his hotel room in Warsaw, where Mr. Daniliuk expressed concern about the possible loss of U.S. support for Ukraine. In particular, Mr. Morrison relayed to me that the inability of any U.S. officials to respond to the Ukrainians' explicit questions about security assistance was troubling them. I was experiencing the same tension in my dealings with the Ukrainians, including during a meeting I had had with Ukrainian Defense Minister Andriy Zagordniuk that day. During my call with Mr. Morrison on September 2nd, I also briefed Mr. Morrison on what Ambassador Sondland had told me during our call the day prior. On September 5th, I hosted Senators Johnson and Murphy for a visit to Kiev. During their visit, we met with President Zelensky. His first question to the senators was about the withheld security assistance. My recollection of the meeting is that both senators stressed that bipartisan support for Ukraine in Washington was Ukraine's most important strategic asset and that President Zelensky should not jeopardize that bipartisan support by getting drawn into U.S. domestic politics. I had been making, parentheses, and continue to make, end parentheses, this point to all of my Ukrainian official contacts. But the push to make President Zelensky publicly commit to investigations of Burisma and alleged interference in the 2016 election showed how the official foreign policy of the United States was undercut by the irregular efforts led by Mr. Giuliani. Two days later, on September 7th, I had a conversation with Mr. Morrison in which he described a phone conversation earlier that day between Ambassador Sondland and President Trump. Mr. Morrison said that he had a, quote, sinking feeling, end quote, after learning about this conversation from Ambassador Sondland. According to Mr. Morrison, President Trump told Ambassador Sondland that he was not asking for a, quote, quid pro quo, end quote. But President Trump did insist that President Zelensky go to a microphone and say he is opening investigations of Biden and 2016 election interference, and that President Zelensky should want to do this himself. Mr. Morrison said that he told Ambassador Bolton and the NSC lawyers of this phone call between President Trump and Ambassador Sondland. The following day, on September 8th, Ambassador Sondland and I spoke on the phone. He said he had talked to President Trump, as I had suggested a week earlier, but that President Trump was adamant that President Zelensky himself had to, quote, clear things up and do it in public, end quote. President Trump said it was not a, quote, quid pro quo, end quote. Ambassador Sondland said that he had talked to President Zelensky and Mr. Yermak and told them that, although this was not a quid pro quo, if President Zelensky did not, quote, clear things up, end quote, in public, we would be at a, quote, stalemate, end quote. I understood a, quote, stalemate, end quote, to mean that Ukraine would not receive the much-needed military assistance. Ambassador Sondland said that this conversation concluded with President Zelensky agreeing to make a public statement in an interview with CNN. After the call with Ambassador Sondland on September 8th, 
I expressed my strong reservations in a text message to Ambassador Sondland, stating that my, quote, nightmare is they, parentheses, the Ukrainians, and parentheses, give the interview and don't get the security assistance. The Russians love it, parentheses, and I quit, end parentheses, end quote. I was serious. The next day, I said to Ambassadors Sondland and Volker that, quote, the message to the Ukrainians, parentheses, and Russians, we send with the decision on security assistance is key. With the hold, we have already shaken their faith in us, end quote. I also said, quote, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with the political campaign, end quote. Ambassador Sondland responded about five hours later that I was, quote, incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear, no quid pro quos of any kind, end quote. Before these text messages, during our phone call on September 8th, Ambassador Sondland tried to explain to me that President Trump is a businessman. When a businessman is about to sign a check to someone who owes him something, he said, the businessman asks that person to pay up before signing the check. Ambassador Volker used the same terms several days later while we were together at the Yalta European Strategy Conference. I argued to both of them that the explanation made no sense. The Ukrainians did not, quote, owe, end quote, President Trump anything, and holding up security assistance for domestic political gain was, quote, crazy, end quote, as I had said in my text message to Ambassador Sondland and Volker on September 9th. Finally, I learned on September 11th that the hold had been lifted and that the security assistance would be provided. After I learned that the security assistance was released on September 11th, I personally conveyed the news to President Zelensky and Foreign Minister Pristeko, and I again reminded Mr. Yermak of the high strategic value of bipartisan support for Ukraine and the importance of not getting involved in other countries' elections. My fear at the time was that since Ambassador Sondland had told me President Zelensky already agreed to do a CNN interview, President Zelensky would make a statement regarding, quote, investigations, end quote, that would have played into domestic U.S. politics. I sought to confirm through Mr. Daniliuk that President Zelensky was not planning to give such an interview to the media. While Mr. Daniliuk initially confirmed that on September 12th, I noticed during a meeting on the morning of September 13th at President Zelensky's office that Mr. Yermak looked uncomfortable in response to the question. Again, I asked Mr. Daniliuk to confirm that there would be no CNN interview, which he did. On September 25th at the UN General Assembly session in New York City, President Trump met President Zelensky face-to-face. He also released the transcript of the July 25th call. The United States gave the Ukrainians virtually no notice of the release, and they were livid. Although this was the first time I had seen the details of President Trump's July 25th call with President Zelensky, in which he mentioned Vice President Biden, I had come to understand well before then that, quote, investigations, end quote, was a term that Ambassadors Volker and Sondland used to mean matters related to the 2016 elections and to investigations of Burisma and the Bidens. I recognize that this is a rather lengthy recitation of the events of the past few months told from my vantage point in Kiev, but I also recognize the importance of the matters your committees are investigating, and I hope that this chronology will provide some framework for your questions. I wish to conclude by returning to the points I made at the outset. Ukraine is important to the security of the United States. It has been attacked by Russia, which continues its aggression against Ukraine. If we believe in the principle of sovereignty of nations, on which our security and the security of our friends and allies depends, we must support Ukraine in its fight against its bullying neighbor. 
Russian aggression cannot stand. There are two Ukraine stories today. The first is the one we are discussing this morning and that you have been hearing for the past two weeks. It is a rancorous story about whistleblowers, Mr. Giuliani, side channels, quid pro quos, corruption, and interference in elections. In this story, Ukraine is an object. But there is another Ukraine story, a positive bipartisan one. In this, second in this second story, Ukraine is the subject. This one is about young people in a young nation struggling to break free of its past, hopeful that their new government will finally usher in a new Ukraine, proud of its independence from Russia, eager to join Western institutions and enjoy a more secure and prosperous life. This story describes a nation developing an inclusive democratic nationalism, not unlike what we in America, in our best moments, feel about our diverse country. Less concerned about what language we speak, what religion, if any, we practice, where our parents and grandparents came from. More concerned about building a new country. Because of the strategic importance of Ukraine in our effort to create a whole free Europe, we, through Republican and Democratic administrations over three decades, have supported Ukraine. Congress has been generous over the years with assistance funding, both civilian and military, and political support. With overwhelming bipartisan majorities, Congress has supported Ukraine with harsh sanctions on Russia for invading and occupying Ukraine. We can be proud of that support and that we have stood up to a dictator's aggression against a democratic neighbor. It is this second story that I would like to leave you with today, and I am glad to answer your questions. That was the opening statement of Ambassador William B. Taylor, the senior U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, who testified before the U.S. House impeachment investigators on October 22nd. Don't forget, please send your feedback. An answer to my question, is this service useful to you, to me at chris at chrisreback.com. Thanks for listening. You'll get the regular episode of Chris Reback's Conversations in your feed later this week. I'll talk with you soon.